If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Now, as soon as you see the subtitle, most Bibles have a, a, a subtitle to help you navigate quickly through uh, passages or get an idea of what it is. For some of you, there will be a song immediately in your mind. So let's just get it out of the way, okay? Uh, sing along if you know it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Now, there's another verse, but I didn't learn that as a kid, so I'm not going to sing it. Now, I don't know who wrote that. Uh, I have a suspicion he's British, uh, especially Scottish, since Zacchaeus is a wee little man in the lyrics of that story. But I don't know for sure. I do know that for uh, all 37 years of my life up until this week, I went around calling this man Zacchaeus. And then I happened to look in the Greek text and realized it's Zacchaeus. And so if that throws you for a loop this morning, um, you can go out of here and still call him Zacchaeus. I really don't care. But uh, he might have a problem with that when you see him in heaven. So I'm just telling you right now, don't say I didn't warn you if you correct your pronunciation of his name. Now here's the thing. Because of this song, the story of Zacchaeus might be one of the most well-known in all the Bible, but probably one that we are the least familiar with. I mean, we know the basics of this wee little man, this short guy who goes into a sycamore tree. And it's kind of a cute story we tell kids, but there's so much more to this story than just the facts. It's so much more than about a short man in a sycamore tree. It's a story of faith, a story of salvation, it's a story of discipleship. It's a story of misplaced worship and misunderstood mission. At the center of it all stands Jesus Christ himself. In fact, Jesus will teach and interact with groups from now on, but this story is actually really important in the Gospel of Luke because this is the last time that we have recorded an individual face-to-face, one-on-one encounter between Jesus and another person. If you'll remember in the context of where we're at, Jesus is passing through Jericho in order to go to Jerusalem. That means that we are about 10 days away from the cross, just over a week before he will be butchered as a criminal, strung up for the world to see, not knowing that he was atoning for their sins on that day. So this is the last time Luke records Jesus having a one-on-one encounter with someone. What will we see here? What can we learn here? Follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, he hurried up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today 
salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. May God bless the reading of his word. The story of Jesus and Zacchaeus is a true historical event, but it's also more than that. It's also exemplary. For here Luke gives us a pattern that he has shown us over and over and over again throughout his gospel. It's a pattern that only shows the power of Christ to save, but also the pattern of discipleship uh, of Christ that follows. And so as we think about those, those two things, uh, it will shape how we look at and understand this passage this morning. So the first thing we want to see is, again, what, what the whole Bible teaches, but what Luke has been telling us again and again and again, and that is namely the story of redemption. The story of redemption. The story here begins with a man in desperate need. A man in desperate need. From the outset, it's clear that part of Zacchaeus' need involved his rejection by society. Luke says that though he was seeking to see those, to see who Jesus was, on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, I want you to think about this just for a minute because the, the average size of a Jewish man in the first century would have been much smaller than the average size of a Jewish man. Uh, today, or even an American today. And so for, uh, so if we're, if we're ratcheting down just our basic average height, then we think about Zacchaeus being even lower than that, uh, we, we have a guy that perhaps even had dwarfism in his day. Um, but regardless, the point is, everybody knows he's short. I mean, that's one of the things that, that he's known for. Uh, and, and he's trying to see who Jesus is, and the crowd clearly is not cooperating. Right? I mean, some of you have been at the parade, you know, and, and you see the little kids, and what do you do? You, you kind of split and say, sure, yeah, you get up in the front here so you can see, right? Uh, they're not doing that for this man. Uh, they, they don't care anything about him getting to the front. Why don't they care? Well, think about how Luke introduces him. Jesus entered Jericho as he was passing through, and there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, there's a lot there that we've seen before, but perhaps you've not been here before. So, so let me just bring you up to speed about uh, how Rome took taxes in their day. You see, Roman, the Roman uh, government appointed uh, small, really petty kings over their provinces, not only to keep the peace, but to collect taxes from the people that they had conquered. But those kings did not want to get directly involved in that taxation process because, frankly, the taxes were unjust, they were overbearing, and they were uh, exorbitant uh, in, in what they collected. Uh, some of you want to grumble about the, the taxes collected by our state and federal governments. You, you have no idea until you look into study how much Rome had. We have it pretty easy. These, these kings wanted to distance themselves from all that unpleasantness of taxes. So they would contract out the work of collecting taxes to local people. And, and, and the person who won the winning bid could really collect whatever they wanted as long as they gave the agreed upon amount to the local government that would pass it on to the empire. Any extra they collect, it will be kept for themselves as a profit. Now, people knew this was their job, so they expected them to collect a little extra to provide for themselves. The problem was there was no limit to the amount that they could collect. And so there was much corruption that went on in this system, and most tax collectors were filthy rich. Luke is providing an, an understatement when he says that, they, that he was rich. 
The wealth came then to these tax collectors at the expense of their own people. And so for the Jews, a tax collector was a wicked man. He's not only working for the man, Rome, uh, but, but, but he's abusing that authority he's been given f- uh, over his own people. He would have been considered a traitor, an oppressor of the Jews, even though he himself was Jewish. But this is all the more compounded for Zacchaeus, who was said to be a chief tax collector. Now, frankly, we don't know exactly what that meant in in practical terms because this is the only time Luke uses that word. To my understanding, it's the only time that it's used in the context of the Gospels themselves. And so we don't know the, the, the details, but it's not hard to guess a chief tax collector would have been one above the other tax collectors. And like any pyramid or Ponzi scheme, he's coming out very, very well on top. So for all these reasons, Zacchaeus would have been seen as a collaborator. He would have been seen as a traitor. He would have been like a Jew who worked with the Nazis to round up more Jews. He would have been reviled and hated by the, his people, his culture around him. And, and for some of us, we may think that that would just be terrible. To, to have all of this wealth, but, but no one that cared for us, to not be accepted by society, that yes, we might be able to make this, this huge palace and have food brought in, but, but where were our friends? Where was the social interaction? You would think, surely this is his desperate need, to be involved with others, but, but that's not his desperate need. In fact, his desperate need was a sinful heart. That, that, that is the desperate need of every man, woman, and child on this planet, regardless of their circumstances. It's in fact a very sad irony that the name Zacchaeus means just or pure. Parents in Israel often name their children, signifying their hopes and dreams for them. So perhaps Zacchaeus' parents held him before the high priest of Israel on the eighth day as he was about to be circumcised and blessed as a son of the covenant. And they said, what is the, the, the child's name? And they said, Zacchaeus, because they prayed that he, would, that he would grow up to be a righteous man, one who was pure and just. That's not where we find him at the beginning of the story. He's stolen, he's defrauded by admission of his own lips, and he's done that to his own people. He had a reputation as being a sinner, yet he's desperate to see Jesus, to know who he is. How how could this man who is so self-centered, who is so sinful, want so desperately to see Jesus? Because what he didn't know is that Jesus was already seeking after him. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus because there was a seeking Savior. That's the second thing that we see, the second chapter in this story of redemption. A man who has a desperate need and a seeking Savior who's going after him. Zacchaeus is behind the crowds. He cannot see Jesus, so what does he do? He runs ahead of where the crowd is and climbs a tree. Now, you know, we've heard this story. So we expect that to happen, right? But we know that that story beat is coming, but what we may fail to realize is how insane that that is for his day and his position. Um, you, you just didn't do that. You didn't run. Remember we talked about in the, in the, the parable of uh, the happy father and uh, the lost son, about how the father runs out and how nobody did that. It was not dignified. Kids might run around, but but if you were to be considered a man in Jewish culture, you did not run. Okay? You just you just didn't do it. But but then he goes beyond that. He climbs a tree. I mean, this is not romper room. Uh, you know, that grown men don't do these kinds of things. 
I mean, just think about even today, if you saw a professional, if you saw a leader in the community, a man in a three-piece suit, perhaps even the mayor or a bank manager standing watching a 4th of July parade, and perhaps, you know, he was of the uh, of diminu- diminutive size and felt like, I can't see. And he, and he ran down the road as fast as he could and jumped up on a fire engine or a truck or something so he could see. He would be a laughingstock. I mean, no one would take that guy seriously anymore and all the more here. Zacchaeus has abandoned all dignity, all decorum, determined to see who Jesus is, determined to know what he was all about. What motivated him to do that? Again, what he didn't know is that while he's seeking Jesus, Jesus was already seeking him. Matthew Henry says that Jesus brings his own welcome. He opens the heart and inclines it to receive him. And that's exactly what Luke describes here. It says, he ran on ahead, verse 4, and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he hurried up and uh, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, of all the people in the crowd, Jesus calls out to Zacchaeus by name. Think about that. Think about that. What, 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 what do we glean from that? How should we, how should we understand that and its significance? Well, first, it just means broadly for all of us, we are not anonymous to God. We are not just part of a faceless mass of humanity that He has created. Just a couple days ago, in my my devotions, I was reading again through Jeremiah and through his call. And it's not just that I knew you as I formed you in the womb. It's before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before before the, the eternal Son of God stepped into time, taking on human flesh, being born of a virgin, he knew Zacchaeus. He knew him personally. And because he knows him personally, because he knows us personally, if he knows our names, he knows our hearts. If he knows our hearts, he knows our sin. He knows our failures. He knows our temptations. But notice, he seeks us anyway. He, he, he desires to come after us, not despite our sin, but because he doesn't, or because he doesn't know our sin, but because we sin. Because he sees the corruption and the defilement of our heart. He knows that we need him. And so he seeks after us. That's why he says he came. Verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus not only seeks Zacchaeus personally, but notice he also seeks him for fellowship with himself. Jesus tells Zacchaeus, come down because I need to stay at your house today. Now again, it's time here for Jesus to step outside the, the, the normal and expected customs of the day. Though it was expected for, uh, for, for good and godly Jews to be hospitable to others, to say, hey, come and stay with me while you're traveling. Uh, c- come and be my guest. It was absolutely unthinkable that you would look at someone and say, I want to be your guest tonight. I, I, I want to go and, and stay at your house while I'm in town. People just didn't do that. Because what it meant was more than just more than just a night. You're not just like leaving a key on the front under the the, the mat of the front porch. No, you're you're staying up with them. You are you are being a host to them. You're providing them as lavish a meal as you are capable of providing. Conversation, all of these things that go into being a good host, and and you just didn't invite yourself to that kind of situation. Zacchaeus culturally should have been like. Why would you do that? That's rude. But what does he, how does he respond? With joy. 
with joy. You can imagine this man up, the, uh, up in the sycamore tree. I, I need to know who Jesus is. And he walks by and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I've got to stay at your house tonight. He's thinking, he knows my name. He, 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 he acknowledges me. And, and he wants fellowship. He wants, to, he wants to come and be my guest at my home. And so whether he jumps or he scrambles down or he yells for someone to help, I don't know. But he gets down and he goes with Jesus to his house. And now the story fast forwards a bit. We're not given an exhaustive account here, but later, however long it took, people see Jesus going into the house of Zacchaeus. And Luke says that when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. Why is he eating with Zacchaeus of all people? Zacchaeus is a sinner. He's a terrible sinner. What are they talking about in there? What's going on in that house? I'll tell you what's going on in that house. Salvation is going on in that house. That's what Jesus says. And at this point, Luke does not give, need to give us all the details about the conversation that's been taking place up to this point. He's already shown us that over and over and over, the kinds of things that Jesus says to sinners who need to hear of him. He doesn't have to give us the details. But here's what we know, and here's what matters most. Zacchaeus heard the gospel and believed. He came to see who Jesus was, and he trusted him as his Savior. That's why Jesus can say, today, verse 10, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus came seeking the lost, that they might be saved, and in Zacchaeus he has fulfilled that mission. That salvation that has come in Jesus produces an evident change in Zacchaeus' life. This is the, the, the third chapter that we see in the story of salvation, namely an evident change, an evident change. Jesus tells Zacchaeus to come down because he needs to stay at his house. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. The crowds are outside complaining, but inside a man once dead spiritually is now alive in Christ. And as this new believer was discipled by Jesus himself, he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is the change that comes as a result of one coming to know Christ of one being saved. Three specific things. First, Zacchaeus rejoices. He rejoices. Even before he fully knows who Jesus is or what he's about, he is, he is joyful, it seems, that Jesus wants, him to, wants to do anything with him, let alone come to his house. That's one way of reading it. I think Luke might actually want us to, to see it somewhat differently because he's kind of, he's kind of given us the, the, the highlights and there's that shift. I think perhaps really what Luke wants us to understand is that he came down and in coming down and coming to Jesus, inviting him into his home, the end result was he received Jesus joyfully. He received him in faith. He received him as his savior. It's a summary of his conversion to Christ. Jesus was seeking him, and Zacchaeus received him for eternal life. Certainly more clearly and not less important is that Zacchaeus repents. Zacchaeus repents. He says, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Think about that. He has gone from taking that which isn't his to giving back to the community. He's turned from the sin of greed and a love of wealth to the righteousness of displaying generosity and sacrifice. 
But he does more than that. He goes beyond that. Zacchaeus shows that the change that Jesus has brought about in him through his rejoicing and repentance also leads him to, to desire to make restitution. Zacchaeus wants to make restitution. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, it is easy to say you're sorry for wronging someone. Frankly, that's the easy part of repentance. The hard part is making restitution. It's far more difficult to make amends for the damage that you've done. So, so just imagine your mind's eye, this quite diminutive, first century, incredibly wealthy Jewish man going door to door with his tax ledger saying, oh, I defrauded you by this many denarii, so one, two, three, four times back. Please forgive me. And moving on to the next door. People standing there with the gold coins thinking, what in the world just happened? What? Who was? Was that really him? Was that his good twin brother? I don't understand. What, 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 what just happened here with Zacchaeus? And then on the way, he stops and he sees a beggar. Uh, perhaps he's lame, perhaps he's blind, giving alms. And he says, sure, here, Pfft, puts the pile of money down into their lap. And they're thinking like, what, what, what's going on? What, what, what's happening here? All the while, as people are scratching their heads, surely he's saying, let me tell you about this man, Jesus. Through the story of Zacchaeus, we see unfolding the story of redemption before us. We see not just a, the, a real life example, a, a historical event, but a pattern for the kind of work that God does over and over and over again as He calls men and women and children out of darkness into His marvelous light, from sin to salvation. But as we think about that story, we can't just see it and move on. We have to stop and also think through, secondly, the pattern of discipleship. We need to see the story of salvation, but then secondly, we need to see the pattern of discipleship. And you might be thinking, isn't it, it might be even thinking or asking in your mind, uh, isn't it enough just to thank God for what he did with Zacchaeus? But that's not the question. Here is the question. This is the question. Where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? Where are you in the story of redemption that God is writing even today? First of all, have you looked at Christ with humble faith? Have you looked at Christ with humble faith? Some of you may be here and you're not disciples of Jesus. You might find yourself alongside Zacchaeus at the beginning of the story, feeling uh, wicked and dirty before God. You've done terrible things. You're deeply ashamed of them. Or maybe you don't identify with Zacchaeus. Maybe you have worked really hard to be good, a good person in your life. And you're plugging away, hoping to make it one day by trying your best. Wherever you're at, you need to understand that your most desperate need before before. God in this life is not anything involving your circumstances. It's everything involving your heart. We just heard this morning about people who are going through circumstances uh, th through Chris's talk that most of us, frankly, probably have a hard time imagining until we're there. We, our circumstances, though, though bad, are not nearly as bad as they might be. But, but God says at the heart of all that is this desperate need. You and I are enemies we are at war, and I will triumph. There is no hope that you're going to win in this spiritual conflict between me and between you. But he sent a Savior 
He has sent an emissary, one who doesn't just tell you how to be saved, but becomes the means by which you can be saved and be forgiven by God. And in fact, in this story of Zacchaeus, we see hope for anyone who longs to be right with God. I want you to think about the larger context of Luke. Have you been tracking with us? What did we just see a few weeks ago? This rich, in, 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 the, in the context of the gospel, just a, a, literally half a chapter before this, a rich young ruler coming before Jesus saying, I'm ready to be saved. What do I got to do? And as Jesus begins to, to peel back his heart, what he sees is that this man does not even comprehend. He doesn't see that he loves his money more than God. Wealth is his God. It's his idol. And because he's unwilling to depart with it, he cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus is sad over this. He is sorrowful over this. But here's what he says. It is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. With, with, with man, it's impossible. It's never going to happen. Now, just half a chapter later, here is the archetypal rich person. Here is a man far wealthier than the rich young ruler. Here is a man who, who has all, all manner of wealth and apparently is not seeking God at all until Jesus first seeks him. And what we see is, yes, with man it is impossible, but we also see the second thing Jesus says, but with God it's possible. So, so do you think it is hopeless, Jericho, for Zacchaeus to be a righteous man? Do you think it is hopeless for him to change? Do you think it is hopeless for him to be anything other than a sinner until the day he dies? Guess what? My name is Jesus, and I'm here to bring salvation to the lost. I'm here to create change and transformation in the lives of sinners, to make them to be the righteous people they will be declared to be when they put their faith in me. That's what Jesus says. I am in the impossible business. And he's still in that business today. No, no one can ever stand before God and say, I'm just too bad. I, I've just done too many bad things. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Because the cost of your salvation was an infinite, inexhaustible riches of righteousness found in the shed blood of Christ. There is no sin that will ever be so vile as to be too much for the blood of Christ to cleanse. So have you come humbly to Christ? Have you come like Zacchaeus, losing your dignity, shedding your pride, saying, God, I cannot save myself. I must have you. Please have mercy on me and forgive me. If you're here and you've never done that this morning, Jesus himself is seeking you out. Just as he sought out Zacchaeus, still today he seeks the lost that they might be saved. And he is willing even now to forgive you and to bring you into fellowship with himself. Now, my guess is most of you are, are, have been there. You've put your faith in Christ. You are his disciple. But the question still remains, where are you in this story? When your life is examined, as one who's put faith in Christ, is there evidence of joyful obedience? Is there evidence of joyful obedience? Think again about what Zacchaeus says. Behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, where did he get that number from, fourfold? Where did he get half from? Did he just pull it out of the air? That just seemed like a good idea to him? No. No, read Exodus 22. God gives very clear instructions to Israel about how to make restitution. And, and he is going right into the law and saying, guess what? Now that I know God, it's time to obey God. That's where his thoughts first go to. It's, it's time to obey, and he does it joyfully. 
But he goes beyond just obeying the law. You see, God told Israel in the law that they were to give 10% to charity. Now understand, that's not 10% to the Lord, okay? Sometimes we get all up on the tithe and about, I give my 10% to God. Well, yeah, guess what? They probably gave 25%. 10% went just to the poor, just to charity. And what does he say? I'm going to give to charity. 50%. I want to give half of everything that I have to those who have nothing. Now, what about you, dear Christian? What about you? Most of us think about obedience. We, we hear that word and we think dull drudgery. We think work. We think joylessness. We think difficulty. We think pain. And you know what? For a season and a time, that might exactly be what it is. There are times in the Christian life, it is not all joy. Don't, don't let, as much as we want it to be joy, and we'll talk about that in just a second, there are times when it, we, just, we just do our duty. That's what Paul told Timothy. Do your duty as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So there are times when I, I do not have joy. I don't have joy. And you know what I do? I put my head down, I put my shoulders back, and I still get in the car and drive here on Sunday morning to teach and preach. I have to do my duty because that's what's going to honor God. There are times when I don't have joy, but I put my head down, I put my shoulders back, and I deal with unruly kids. I do my duty as a father that honors God. There are times I don't have joy. I don't have joy. It's frustrating and it's difficult and it's painful and I just want to go lay down and sleep and hope that it all goes away. But I have to put my head down put my shoulders back and I make sacrifices because I love this church and I love my wife and I love my community and I do all kinds of crazy things because it is my duty before God. That might be where you're at when you say, I, I can't, I'm not joyful, so I'm not going to obey. Don't do that. Obey that you might become joyful. Because that's, what, that's where God is leading this. This is where Jesus wants the end result to be. It's not just a dutiful obedience, a joyful obedience. But if all you have is duty, then do your duty. Your God deserves it. He is worth it. But someone we've talked about before you might be familiar with, Thomas Chalmers. He was a great Scottish preacher of the 19th century. He did many great things, but the, things, he, the thing, one thing he's probably most famous for today is preaching one sermon. How do you like that? One sermon. And if I could do a good, I'll have Joe do the Scottish accent after the church. You can go and talk to him. But the title was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the whole point of that sermon was this. You are almost never going to get rid of any sinful desire and habit in your life by sheer force of will. Can't do it. You're going to wake up and say, I'm not going to the internet page today. It's wrong, it's sinful, I'm not going to do it. And guess what? You'll probably do it. Maybe not that day, but the next day or the next week. I'm not going to talk to my spouse that way. Good, but you'll probably do it. If that's all you've got going is, I don't want to do it, so I'm not going to do it, not going to work. But what Chalmers says, when you look to the Bible, what you see is the Bible says, fight a love for sin with a love for God. Fight a sinful habit with a deeper love, a deeper affection for your Savior. That's how we win the day against sin. Again, sometimes it's just duty. So sometimes we, 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 we put away the phones, we put away the internet, and, and we, we, we close our mouths so we don't say the things that we should, and we just do our duty. But in the long term, what we need is a greater love, 
a joyful obedience like Zacchaeus had. Jesus didn't have to say, now Zacchaeus, here's what you need to do. You need to give half of all that stuff away and you need to restore it fourfold. He didn't say that, did he? No. In fact, the, the, the implications in the middle of dinner, he stands up. He says, Lord, I know this is what I should do. I'm going to give half of everything away to the poor and restore everything four, fourfold. And Jesus is like, this is why it's obvious salvation has come to this house. There is joyful obedience. So, so how do we have those affections stoked? Here's my thought, at least some of you, maybe all of you, I, I don't know. You, you, you've become a disciple and those new affections that God gave you when you first believe are just barely warm embers in the fire of your heart. It, it, it is so easy to leave behind the fellowship that Jesus invites us to on a regular basis. And what we need to do on a regular basis is go and get that poker and start stoking at those embers. We need to start banging and we need to get down in there and blow the, the breath of the Holy Spirit onto them to put, the, put more fuel in, in, in terms of logs of Scripture onto that fire and, and get those embers stoked so that they are a raging, roaring fire of love and affection for God. And when that happens, we will see dwindling, shriveling, burning in that fire our love for anything that stands against God. That's how that's how we come to have joyful obedience. You say, well, well where is all in the Bible? You can read it in about 12 verses at the beginning of John 15. Jesus says, you want to live with my disciple? You can't do it apart from me. How are you going to do it? How are you going to do it with me? You do abide in me. What does that look like? Your, my words go into you and they stay in you. And from those abiding words, you call out to me in prayer and ask for what you need. And then you have the joy of fellowship with God's people. It's not that difficult if we want it if we really, really want it, if we are sick of sin and long for the holiness without which we will not see the Lord, then we will do it. We, we will do our duty until it becomes joy. Is that where you're headed, loved ones? Do you find joy and obedience not just in the areas where you don't have any problems sinning, not just in those areas because of your personality or your interests, it's easy to be obedient, but in those places that spring from the whole counsel of God that run contrary to your inclinations, contrary to your desires, contrary to what is easy for your life. That's the mark of a true disciple. Someone whose humble faith is leading them in ever-increasing ways to joyful obedience. And the result of all of that is sacrificial mission. This is the, the, the third the third question that we need to ask ourselves in, have we had humble faith? Do we have joyful obedience? Are we engaged in sacrificial mission? If you're wondering where that is, I take it right from verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's not the first time that Jesus has said that in Luke's gospel. That's why he came and that's what he sent his disciples out to do, which we've seen several times in Luke's gospel. I like what Jesus says in John 20, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Seeing the gospel preached is never something we just sit back and watch others do. So this morning we heard from Chris, we are thankful for that. But if that's as far as it goes, we've missed the point. We, the most basic fundamental call we have as God's people is to tell others about Jesus. This is why Spurgeon was right when he said this, quote, Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. 
You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. We're quick to brag about our children, quick to brag about our jobs, quick to brag about our opportunities and possessions, but do we brag about our Lord? Do we brag about our Savior? Do we brag about our King? That's our mission, to tell people about Jesus, because He alone can save sinners. If we don't, we're like those people that buy military uniforms secondhand and clean them up and wear them around trying to cash in on something that they've never experienced. We wear the colors of Christ, but we have no part with Him. But let's be clear. If we follow the example of Christ as He has commanded, it's not going to be easy. In fact, specifically here, we're told it will involve sacrifice, the sacrifice of reputation. That's what we see in the example of Jesus here, that reputation is far less important than mission. People people complained about Jesus and even spread rumors about him in his day because just as he did here with Zacchaeus, he went to seek and save the lost and that meant he hung out with sinners. He went to where they were at. He went to their homes and dined with them and his reputation suffered for it. But he was willing to cast aside that reputation for the sake of bringing people into the kingdom. So my question is, what are we afraid of losing that keeps us from telling people about Christ? Is it our reputation? Is it friends? Is it family? Trust me, I, I know that it's not easy. I, I, have, I have family members who are not saved. And it can be very intimidating to be sitting down in an opportunity like the holidays and, and, to, and to look at them in the eye across a plate of Thanksgiving turkey or Christmas ham or whatever it is you eat and say, you know, all these things have been great and it's good to see you, but I'm, I'm worried about your soul. You, you know I'm a Christian. Can I, can I tell you about Jesus? I think you would be interested in him. I think, you would be, I think you'd be interested to know that he's not what he's betrayed as in, uh, portrayed as in movies and television. He's not the kind of things that you hear about on, 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 on late night talk shows. He's something far, far greater. And you know what? If they kick you out of that house, it will be painful. But in the end, it will be worth it if they've heard about Jesus. If they've seen that He is so important to you that you are willing to allow that long, deep relationship to suffer, that you're saying, I love you. You know I love you. You know I, all the things that I do for you, the time I spend with you but I love Jesus more. That's going to leave an impression on them. And it's going to honor Christ. Whatever we have that causes us to cower in fear and our tongue to be tightened, the solution is to go back to our first love. To find joy and freedom to obey and proclaim by dwelling deep with Jesus. That's the only thing that can really propel us and sustain us in our gospel mission. Years ago, the Wycliffe Bible translators in Brazil had finished translating the gospel of Luke into the Mamiande language and began recording the soundtrack to the Jesus film. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's a movie that is all basically a visual representation of the gospel of Luke. And what they do is just record local dialects and slap it onto the movie wherever they go and then show this movie for evangelistic purposes. And when it came time to record 
Luke 19, they try really desperately not to reuse the same voices. So each character seems to come alive, and the only man that apparently they could find to record the part of Zacchaeus was someone known to be a real scoundrel. Someone very much like Zacchaeus in real life who would profit always at the expense of others. And as he recorded the line, he got to verse 8 where he says, if I stole anything, he didn't record it correctly. He said, if he stole anything. Afterward, the translators pointed out that he made a mistake. He said, oh, I didn't make a mistake. I didn't make a mistake. And he refuses, refused to re-record the line. Days and weeks went by and though blinded to his sin, he eventually was persuaded to record the line properly. And once the recording was complete, the entire village crowded into a school building to watch the film. Every eye, the missionaries there say, was fixed on the screen as the gospel was brought to life visually before their eyes. And toward the end of the film, when Jesus is seen sweating and bleeding, struggling to bear the weight of the cross that would point to the greater weight of God's wrath he was about to bear, as the ultimate price for humanity's salvation, tears could be streaming down the eyes even of the thief who recorded the part of Zacchaeus. The power of Christ's love had reached even to the hard heart of such a man as that. And it can reach into ours as well. Wherever we are at, in need of salvation, in need to be renewed, in, in need to, to, to press harder into obedience. Gaze into the glory of Christ again and again and again and again. And you will find yourself compelled to love Him who first loved you. Father, we are thankful for Your Son. We're thankful for Zacchaeus and for his faith in Your Son. Father, we pray that from our own position of faith that we would continue to love you, that we would, we would continue to pursue a deeper love for you, and that, Father, from that love we would find obedience and mission being the natural, joyful response of our hearts. God, we pray these things in the name and for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.